to your pants about that on your way down. Alright, good to see everyone this evening. I'm going to give you a copy of my notes. Such as they are. And we're going to begin tonight in Acts chapter 18. <coughs> we're going to what we're going to do for a few weeks is a series uh, on the on some New Testament doctrine concerning the kingdom of God, the church of the church of God, which is the body of Christ, and uh, responsibilities to it. A lot of confusion in this area. I guess I need to turn on a microphone, don't I? All right. <clears throat> All right, so Acts chapter 18, just to um, get started here this evening, and verses 24 through 26 says, A certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man, and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And so uh, tonight, in the few next few weeks, we want to try to expound unto God more perfectly the things that I've learned in the last 10 years, or 12 years, uh, 15 years and that I was confused about for a long time, and many others are as well, or have been. So, so let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then and we'll, we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to open your precious word. Thank you, Father, that you have given us uh, your words, and preserved them for us in our own language. And I pray that as we look into the word of God tonight, help us to see clearly and give us understanding into thy truth concerning your kingdom, uh, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, which is his body, and uh, help us to, uh, to clearly understand the distinctions between the two and, uh, and avoid confusion uh, thereby. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there's many different ideas, of course, and books have been written on what the kingdom of God is and what a church is and what the body of Christ is and you know, I've had preachers over the years that have gotten into discussions with, and usually it ends something like this. Well, there's a book that you ought to read, and I often think, well, why don't we let the Bible interpret itself? Because what we've done with a lot of Bible terms is we've changed the definitions. And we haven't gone to the Bible for to define the terms. Yeah, so many of these, which cannot clearly explain themselves through passages that contradict their viewpoints, therefore leaving much confusion concerning these things, concerning the kingdom of God, the church, which is his body. Anyway, so if we just let the Bible interpret itself, it will clear up all the confusion. Uh, but instead of doing that, many preachers and teachers just preach the main things and avoid specifics which severely weaken believers and weakens churches. You know, for years, there's, there's just a lot of things that I could not, could not explain and make sense of because they just seem to contradict each other concerning the kingdom of God and the church. And that's the main issue. And what is the body of Christ? That's another question. But if we go to the Bible and just stick with the Bible and forget about what these men write, uh, I think we can understand it. Uh, in fact, I remember there was a this young fellow that joined Calvary a few years ago, and uh, Pastor Webb began to explain to him what the church is. He said, well, yeah, I never really had any teaching on it, but he said, I, th I gathered that what it, that's what it was from just reading the Bible. It was local church only. You know, there only is a local church. Uh, and again, if, if we wouldn't have a lot of this confusion, which comes from 
but the roots of it is Catholicism and, and those kind of teachers. But anyway, so what is, the question we want to ask first is, what is the kingdom of God? Well, the word kingdom means the power or authority of a king, a realm or domain over which this power proceeds. So the kingdom of God, therefore, is the rule of God and the extent of his rule. Now, if we're talking about the kingdom of God, and God made all things and created all things, isn't it kind of without saying that we would think that his kingdom is forever? And it is. That's what the Bible declares, that the kingdom of God or the rule of God and the extent of his rule is everlasting. Go to Daniel chapter 4, and we're going to look up some of these verses, some of the others we won't, but many verses we're going to look up. So we're just going to take our time, uh, again, to help us to understand and show what the scriptures teach concerning these things. Daniel chapter 4, verse 3, speaking about God, and this is Nebuchadnezzar, really this is, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking prior to him being um, becoming insane, which chapter 4 then describes, and then he also speaks at the end of that as well. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king, unto all people, nations, and languages, verse 1, that dwell on all the earth, peace and multiplied in you, I thought it good to show the signs and the wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion from generation to to generation, and then he concludes this this narration that he's giving to this is a this is a this is a proclamation he'd give out to his people, his domain about God and what had happened to him. Of course, chapter four describes that time where he became insane and seven seven years I believe it's seven years passed over him. He lived like an animal, and then in verse thirty four and thirty five he says again. Uh, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? You know, sometimes we wonder, you know, is God's kingdom everlasting because of things that are going on in the earth? But remember, he's given man dominion over the earth. But that dominion has limits. You know, one of those limitations, the result of one of those limitations was flood. You know, man became so evil, getting so far from God, there was only really only one family left. And God said, okay, I'm going to destroy all and start over. You know, there have been... There have been several resets, you might say. Um, Brother uh, Forney, again, um, mentioned this one time in his, one of his anthropology classes. There's been several resets. I think I mentioned this the other day, other day that you know, the, the flood was a reset. We get back to the beginning. God having a clear, or man having a clear understanding of who God is in as a result of the flood. They had moved so, so far from God and, and, and the, and the the truth had become so corrupted, so God reset it. As a Tower of Babel was, again, a reset, not to the extent of the flood, but it was a reset. Uh, the crucifixion was, was a reset, if you will. So, so God's kingdom is everlasting, but though during this time, this is man's day, during this time he's given man some liberties and freedom to make choices. But it is an everlasting kingdom. So we're talking about the kingdom of God, it's a, it's a, it's a or the realm or domain or the extent of his rule, which begins with time and will go through uh, the end of time. Uh, Psalm 45, 6 says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Uh, Psalm 103, 19, The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Psalm 145, 12 and 13, to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. You know, even Pharaoh found out that God's kingdom does rule. You know, and God let him go for, for a certain amount of time, but then enough was enough.
also an invisible kingdom, but will become visible. In other words, the kingdom of God goes through phases, and this is what most people don't understand about the kingdom of God and why, why they have a hard time understanding it is because it changes phases. It goes through phases. Though it's eternal, it, it goes through phases. Right now, it's invisible. Look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Because <clears throat> see, when we say kingdom, what, have, what do you automatically think of? Huh? But, but from the Bible. Huh? The millennial reign of Christ. That's, the, that's our automatic, what we automatically think of. We're gonna, we think the, the kingdom of God and Christ, we automatically think of the millennium. Well, that will be, part, be it someday. But right now it's not. Right now it's invisible. Then it will become visible. So think about it, invisible. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 3. Of course, Jesus here speaking to Nicodemus. And verse 3 says, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he says, except you have a spiritual birth, you won't see it. You know, that tells me that it's not seen at this point in time, and even today it's not seen with the naked eye, the physical eye. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time in his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So it's something you also that you enter. He goes on, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, You must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. So the, spirit, uh, a, the kingdom of God, or a spiritual birth, is not seen with the eye, with, with a physical eye, it's seen with spiritual eyes, and it is seen by its effects, not for what it is. Uh, just like the wind. You can't see the wind. The only way you know it's windy, if you look out a window, is there's something moving or being blown by it. You see the evidence of it. And so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And it shows their entrance into the kingdom of God so you can see the kingdom of God in a person by the evidence of a spiritual birth so it's it's invisible in John's or, um, and of course to see it here in in verse 3 speaks of perception or have knowledge of uh, in Luke 17 20 through 21 I have that actually that verse printed out for you. It says, When he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. So he's saying this, the kingdom right now is in a spiritual phase, an invisible phase. It's within you. It's something God does in your heart. It's not something you see with the eye. Um, you know, the, the, again, the children of Israel were looking for that kingdom that was going to be set up with a throne and on the throne of David. No, that will eventually come. But that wasn't what Jesus was talking about when he came the first time. Uh, Paul, in writing to the churches at Rome, said in Romans 14, 7, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, in other words, not outward things, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. So, so as we think about it, you know, this is an invisible kingdom and is one where men choose to enter or not to enter. It is not political. It's not outward. It's not political. In John 18, remember Jesus told uh, Pilate if, uh, in uh, John 18, 36, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. So if my kingdom was visible, then I'd fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, somebody said this, quote, the sword was never shaped for the hand of God's people. God's work is done only with the sword of the spirit, unquote. So again, the kingdom of God is, goes through phases. 
It is now invisible. But we also know from the scriptures that one day it will become visible. It will become visible. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, speaks about this. It says, In these days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now, the, the word set up means to stand. So the idea isn't this is something new that God's going to create. It's just going to be set up. It's just going to stand up. It's, it's already here. But it's going to stand up and be noticed. That's the idea here of the word set up. Um, it's going to endure. It's going to remain. So, you know, this is what we're here we're talking about is the thousand-year reign of Christ. And it is going to be a visible kingdom. Jesus is going to literally, visibly sit on the throne of his father David in Jerusalem and rule and reign the earth out of Israel. You know, the, the many passages of the Old Testament talk about this. And, uh, and of course, part of the Davidic covenant uh, concerned that, that God promised uh, a, a king to set on David's throne. It would be an eternal kingdom, uh, an everlasting kingdom. So, so this, this is what we know as, this part of the kingdom is what we know as the thousand-year reign of Christ or the millennium. And in that reign, or in that part of the kingdom, he's going to rule with a rod of iron. Um, you're not going to be able to just do what you want then. <laughs> you know, Revelation, three times in the book of Revelation, it speaks concerning this. Uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 27, and writing to one of the churches, uh, actually the church at Thyatira, he speaks of this in, in chapter 2, verse 27 of Revelation. says, And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I have received of my father. And then again in chapter 12, in verse 5, where he gives this, this um, short, concise description of the ages, you might say. Uh in verse 5 says, she brought forth a man-child, which would be the Lord Jesus Christ, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was cut up unto God and to his throne. And that, of course, speaks of the ascension, and, and then the woman fled into the wilderness, and so on. So, so this, this part of the kingdom, it will become visible, the kingdom will become visible eventually during the millennial reign of Christ, but it's still the same kingdom of God. Because this kingdom is eternal. It just goes through phases. It changes its face, if you will. Uh, and really, you remember the Lord's Prayer, or you know, the model prayer that Jesus gave us, and that phrase in there, it says, um, Thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. That's really referring to that time. You know, the, he, he instructed us to pray for the coming of the Lord, to pray for the time when it will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And during that time, it's going to be done on earth as it is in heaven because Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign uh, during uh, that millennial reign of Christ. So it's eternal. Uh, it goes through phases. Uh, it is also called by the names in the Bible. In the letter C, it's called the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Christ. Now, we can see this. Uh, the kingdom of heaven term is really only used in Matthew, and uh, <clears throat> some try to make some distinction there, but they're used interchangeably. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But in Mark chapter 1, concerning the same occasion, and in Luke 4, it's the same occasion the wording is Luke or Mark 1, uh, verse 14. Now, after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, and Matthew says, speaks of it as the kingdom of heaven. So, so they're really synonymous. It's really the same thing. Uh, it's also referred to, I want some place here, uh, for example, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, it says, And 
blessed are the poor in the spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, of course, if you go to Luke chapter 6, he, he says it's blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, concerning the Sermon on the Mount, this is one of the other things that always confused me, too, when I was in the fundamentalist churches. They would say that the Sermon on the Mount concerns the conduct of the kingdom. No, yeah, it does. But that kingdom is eternal. Not, and, and, and what they meant by that was the, the conduct that will be on earth during the millennial reign of Christ. No, this is to be the kind of conduct that God's people always exhibit. Not just during the kingdom age. See, this is the kind of conduct, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, that we as God's people ought to be, ought to be uh, uh, motivated by the Holy Spirit uh, to conduct our lives by. It's not just for the kingdom age or the millennial reign of Christ. Um, after all, the kingdom is eternal. And uh, so... Uh, it's also called the kingdom of Christ. Matthew chapter, or not Matthew, Ephesians 5, 5. Uh, Paul writing to the church at Ephesus in, in Ephesians 5, 5 calls it in verse 5. For this ye know that no whoremonger or no unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So when you see the term in Matthew, kingdom of heaven, and you see the, the term kingdom of God or kingdom of Christ in Ephesians 5, it's, it's all referring to the exact same thing, the kingdom of God. Now, under letter D, the kingdom of God must be entered. It must be entered. Again, we've read that in John 3, 5. Jesus told Nicodemus, except a man be born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 5, in verse 20, that except, for I say unto you, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, how does my righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Well, it's when we by faith put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then his righteousness becomes ours. We are made righteous by him. Uh, 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 Romans 5.1 says, Therefore being justified, that means to be declared righteous by God. Be justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the kingdom of God must be entered. And, of course, the way it's entered is through salvation. By being born again. When a person is born again, they have entered the kingdom of God. In fact, look at Colossians chapter 1. I believe this makes this very clear in Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1 verse 12 says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. So we've been, we've been delivered from the power of darkness or the kingdom of Satan and translated, that means, that means we've been moved. You know, to translate, you move the same thing from one place to another. You know, those, when, when the... The translators of the King James Bible translated the King James Bible. They took a word in Greek and moved it to English. They, it was a, as much as possible a word-for-word -word translation. Now, they didn't, they didn't say, well, we think this word here means this, and then wrote down what they thought it meant. That's what the translators of the New International Version did. They translate out thoughts and ideas. That's in the preface of a new international Bible I have. So that's not translation, that's interpretation. No, translate is to move from one place to another. And, you know, really, we were on our way to hell. We were in the devil, kingdom of the devil as if it were standing on the precipice of hell. 
condemned by God, but when we are born again, God translates us or delivers us out of that into his kingdom. And we are, we are made, 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 in other words, it's not something we do ourselves, but we are made a child of God. That's what John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to them gave he power or the authority or the right to become a son of God. So, so the kingdom of God then has to be entered, and it's entered by the new birth. When, 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 we hear the, when a person hears the gospel, repents of their sins, and puts their faith in Christ, they are translated into the kingdom of God. You know, the gospel we preach is not the gospel of the church. It's not the gospel of the church. It's the gospel of the kingdom of God. Let me ask you this. You know, and, and these are things I've, I've had, to, had to search, think through, and rethink in the last 12 years. Okay? And they're just really becoming clear to me, clearer in the last few years. But... Let me ask you this. Does receiving or believing the gospel put you into a church? No, it does not. It puts you into the kingdom of God. It puts you into the kingdom of God. You become a child of God, but it doesn't put you into a church. And we'll see this clearly when we talk about the church. It put, see, it puts you into the rule or the domain of God. Now you belong to him. But that doesn't put you in a church. Because that's not what a church is. Unless you believe like the Catholics. You know, it is the same gospel. It is the same gospel, the same good news that John the Baptist preached. That Jesus preached. That Peter preached. John preached. And Paul preached. You know, Revelation 14, 6 says, I saw another angel fly. And this is in, this is in the tribulation. You know, and there are some people who think you get saved differently in the tribulation than you do now. But this is during the tribulation. The Bible says in Romans 14, 6, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. To preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation, and kindred, and tongue, and people. Now, one of the things you will not find from Revelation chapter 4 to Revelation 19 is a church. You won't find it. There will be no churches during the tribulation. There won't be any churches during the millennium either. This is the age of the churches. And the gospel is not the gospel of the churches. It's the gospel of the kingdom of God. You know, the kingdom of God is, is by the way, the kingdom of God is entered the same way in every phase of the kingdom of God. The Jews under the law demonstrated their repentance and faith in Christ by acknowledging their guilt and condemned state before the law and then by bringing sacrifices demonstrating their faith in a Redeemer to come. The one that was promised. In fact, look at Luke chapter 2. You know, in... In biblical times, while the Lord Jesus walked on earth and, and when he, at his, the time of his birth, there was a few people that understood this, but not very many. But there were some. Uh, Luke 2, verse 28, speaking about Simeon here, uh, was a devout man. And, uh, and you notice, it, let's go back to verse 25. Here, here's an interesting statement. It says the Holy Ghost, the end of that verse 25 says he was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. So that's referring, he's, he's waiting for the Redeemer to come. He knows, see, those sacrifices, he understood that, those, that every time he took a lamb or a turtle dove and offered it on an altar in the temple, he understood that all this is is a picture of the Redeemer to come. He understood that. But you know, those Pharisees, they took pride in their sacrifice. And they forgot about 
pride themselves in what time of office their boss is. What time of office their boss comes out for his job. See, they weren't looking forward to the beginning of time. That's why we didn't expect it. Because everything about them was everything was about what they were doing. Not faith in what he was doing. You see, Simeon understood that there was one coming who would not only cover his sins, but take it away. And, and, and notice here, verse on, in verse 26, it revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit in the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. See, he understood that those sacrifices could never take away his sin. But there was one to come who would give him deliverance once for all. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And he laid his eyes on him. See, the, the Spirit of God told him, this is the one. This is the Redeemer. And then, of course, Miriam, or Anna, I'm sorry, and in verse 38, uh, she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake to him, of him, to all that notice, looked for redemption in Israel. You see, they were still looking for. They looked forward to Christ coming. We simply look back that he already came. That's really the only difference. You know, and, and like I say, even just like there is today, there were those in that time that were perverse. They were without reverence to God who brought corrupt sacrifices. You know, Malachi chapter 1 talks about they would bring the lame, the blind, and all this kind of stuff, and they'd offer it to the Lord. And really what that shows is they had no reverence for God. They had no respect for his holiness. It shows an unrepentant heart. And, and so, uh, so again, they didn't bring the right sacrifice. They weren't really looking for it. They were trusting in their sacrifices. So... But salvation, again, salvation does not place you into a church or the body of Christ. It does put you into the kingdom of God and the family of God. Now, that's another term that's used in the Bible, but it's only used one time. Family of God. Uh, and we'll get that in a little bit. But I want you to note something here as we think about the kingdom of God Many of the parables refer to the kingdom and not to the church. For example, the parable of the wheat and tares. Go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And this is why the parables were always confusing to me. Because <clears throat> I never understood the difference. For, for many years, I didn't understand the difference between the kingdom of God and the church. But the parable of the wheat and tares refers to the kingdom. doesn't refer to the church. Matthew 13, verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. So understand again, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same thing. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather you together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, if you try to apply that to church, what you're going to say, what you have to say is, then if there's people in the church that, are, are, are disagreeing with church doctrine, you can't, do, you can't root them out. So that defies church discipline. But in the gospel of the kingdom, see the gospel of the kingdom, you're, you're, you're talking about people from all ages, all, all professing Christianity from all ages. Notice I said professing, because that's what the tares are. They're not true believers, they're false believers. 
And he said, if, you go, you, if you're going to go around the world and try to root out all the tares, by the way, that's what the Roman Catholic Church tried to do according to their doctrines. They tried to root out all the heretics during the Middle Ages and shed. Blood shed like blood shed has never been shed. The only problem is they're the heretics. They're the false teachers. They're the false kingdom. And, and see, they believe that their church is the kingdom of God. That's where they've gone wrong. So we're not talking here about church. This is talking about the kingdom. We're not to go around the world. You know, we're not to go, down, go over to, to the neighboring churches around here and dictate and tell them, you need to kick this person out, and you need to kick this person out, and you need to kick this person out. It's none of our business. Because we don't have rule over the kingdom of God. God does. And we let that judgment to God. Uh, look also at Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. And, and we see here that there are going to be some who say they're in the kingdom of God that really are not. Matthew chapter 8. So we don't exercise discipline for the kingdom. Uh, that'll come at the end of the age when they stand before God and the, and the books are open. Matthew chapter 8 says, When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Jesus saith unto him, said unto him, See thou tone. Tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. Uh, actually, what I was getting at was here in verse 5. I'm sorry. And when Jesus entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, now notice this. This is a Gentile centurion, a Roman centurion. Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof. But speak thy word only, and my servant shall be healed. Now, what is that man demonstrating? Faith. Very strong faith. He understands authority. And what this tells us, he had submitted himself to the Lord's authority and exercised faith in him that he would do whatever he could do, whatever he said. And he says in verse 9, For I am a man under authority, have soldiers under me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, Come, and he cometh, and to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled, and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you, that many shall come from the east and west, and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And see, this, of course, this gent what it's showing us is this Gentile centurion demonstrated true faith in the Lord and was thereby in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose children are going to be cast out at the judgment. The Pharisees pride themselves that they were, they were of their father Abraham. They were children of the promises. The only problem is they didn't obey the promises. They didn't have faith in the promises. They trusted in their own sacrifices. And so he said, what he's saying is, you're going to be cast out. At the judgment seat, you're going to be like the tear. You're going to be the tares. And this Gentile, it's going to be wheat. You know, again, this, clear, this demonstrates that there will be many who think they are in the kingdom of God who are not. Which means they are not saved. And so the kingdom of God is entered by being born again, by salvation. That's how we get into the kingdom of God. All right? Any questions? I want to give you, Nathan. Uh, in 
Uh, I, I think he's talking about children of those who are all in the kingdom. That's what I take to mean. You know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he said he made reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were all believers who are in the kingdom of God, and here their descendants are going to be cast out. That's, that's, that's what I think it means. All right. Uh, then, of course, the family of God, number two. Again, this is only used once in the Bible, and it is self-descriptive, very self-descriptive. Ephesians 3, 14 and 15. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So, again, you're talking about everybody that's saved, those that are already in heaven, and those that are still on earth. So that's really kind of synonymous with those in the kingdom of God. Uh, it's called here the family of God. And again, this is the, it's only used one time in the Bible. All right, then number three, the New Testament churches. And uh, let's start with Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking at a lot of verses in the book of Acts. And again, we want to try and let the Bible define itself. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. It says, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord, and the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. So then had the churches rest. And he gives three regions, three areas of where these churches were. There were churches in Judea. There were churches in Galilee. There were churches in Samaria. We know that Philip, in Acts chapter 8, started, went down to Samaria and preached the gospel, and the church was established there. So um, there's these churches in Acts chapter 16. Again, verse 5. <coughs> It says, and so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Now, the word church, as it's used in the New Testament, is the word uh, ecclesia or ecclesia. There's, there's difference of opinion about the pronunciation. If you go to Blue Letter Bible and click on the pronunciation, it, it, they say ecclesia. Uh, I know Pastor Webb says it's ecclesia, you know, but I did. I think it was him or somebody else I heard say, "Say we really don't know for sure what the correct pronunciation is of this word." But anyway, what it means? We do know what it means. It means assembly. It means assembly. And this is the way it's used in the Bible. Now, on almost all occasions. Now there is, and we'll see this a little bit later on. We, we won't see this tonight, but it is used in an institutional sense. Um, seven or eight times, or maybe a few more times more than that. For example, and I'll just throw this out there, and we'll look at this next, next week uh, probably, but for example, Ephesians 5, chapter 5, uh, chapter 5 talks about Christ being the head of the church. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Okay, So there, the, 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 those that believe in a universal church see, say, see there, that's a universal church. Okay, The husband is the head of the wife. Does he have a universal wife? Or they also mean, say it means invisible. So do you have an invisible wife? Do you ever try kissing your invisible wife? Uh, you know, it just don't make sense. No, it's talking about somebody's, any wife or any husband, the institution of a husband, the institution of a wife, not a particular wife or husband. And it's not talking about a particular church in that sense. It's talking about the institution of the church. So anyway. But we think about assembly, uh, there's four implications to this word, translated church. And these four are local, visible, organized, constituted. Remember those four words. We'll look at them. It refers to a local assembly. And let's go through some of these verses. Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. Acts 2, 47. Again, if we keep it in context, I think we can understand that this is always referring to a local church. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. What church are we talking about? The church of Jerusalem. Uh, again, verse 41 talks about the them, and that's the church at Jerusalem. Uh, chapter 5, verse 11. Again, 
And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. And again, all this happened at the church of Jerusalem. Ananias and Sapphira got struck dead. And there was great fear in that church at Jerusalem. Uh, chapter 7, verse 38. Now, this is an interesting one. This is in the testimony of Stephen before the Pharisees. And he says this in verse Acts 7, 38. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai with our fathers who received the live oracles to give unto us. Now, see, we would, that, that doesn't quite set right with us, but, but read it this way. This is he that was in the wilderness that was, that was in the assembly that was in the wilderness. Now, let me ask you a question. Was Israel in the wilderness assembled? Yeah, they were. They were in assembly. They were organized. Go back and read how organized. You know, there were certain tribes were on the north side, certain tribes on the south side, certain tribes on the east side, and certain tribes on the west side. They were a very organized assembly. They were assembly. And that's why it says to the church that was in the wilderness. You know, they, aren't, they were not a New Testament church like we have today, but they were an assembly. And that's why the word church is used here. So, again, it helps us to understand what a church is. It's assembly. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was consenting unto his death. At the time, there was a great persecution against the church. And, again, it identifies it, which was at Jerusalem. And, again, verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, uh, and hailing men and women committed them to prison. Uh, by the way, there were churches and houses. This isn't church. This is just a meeting house. I mean, we, if, if we lost this building, we'd still be a church. You know, the, it, you know, losing a building does not make you no longer a church. Losing the group or the assembly, then we'd cease to be a church. Uh, chapter 9, verse 31 then had the churches, so again, there's the plural form of it, referring to the different churches. Um, chapter 11, verse 22. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which is at Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas, that she should go as far as Antioch. And, of course, verse 26. In those days, uh, an uh, and when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians for, at first at Antioch. Now, go to chapter 19 and verse 32. <clears throat> chapter 19, verse 32. This is the uproar at Ephesus um, by the silversmiths. And in verse 32, it says, Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. Again, that word assembly there is ecclesia. Same word as translated church 114 times in our Bible. Uh, verse uh, 41, And when they, he had spoken, he dismissed the assembly. Of course, that's the town clerk. He still had control of that thing because he dismissed them. Uh, so, so again, it refers to an assembly. You know, you know the Lord, or, or local people, uh, cannot come together or assemble and be all over the world at the same time. You know, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and he says to the church of God at Corinth, and then he said in chapter 11, when you therefore come together, and that means, again, you assemble. So they were an assembly of people. Uh, you might read 1 Corinthians 2 and say, uh, to, the, to the assembly at Corinth. But the word church identifies it as Christ's assembly. Uh, the assembly in Acts chapter 19 was not a church because it was not Christ's assembly. It was an assembly of, of people uh, concerning some political issue. So we think about a church. It is a local assembly secondly it is something that's visible something that's visible again second corinthians 1 verse 1 it says second corinthians second corinthians 1 1 uh paul an apostle of jesus christ by the will of god to both timothy our brother unto the church of god which is at corinth and with all the saints which are in all achaia 
So again, he's, he's, he's addressing the church of God at Corinth. And then in verse 15, he says, In this case I was minded to come to you before, that you might have a second benefit, and to pass by you into Macedonia, and to come again out of Macedonia unto you, and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. Now, obviously they were visible, or how would he have, how would he come to them if they're not visible? If they could not assemble, if they were some invisible body or some universal body that's all over the world, how would he come to them? You know, do you ever hear of an, uh, of an invisible assembly? You know, one of the things that's, that's really almost funny, it's really silly. When we started the church here, we were... Of course, we moved down here in June uh, until September when we started having services uh, over at the other old, old building, of course. We attended Calvary every, every Sunday and Wednesday night. And so many times we'd stay in the prophet's chamber during the day. Well, Kevin Jones has his library from college in the prophet's, in the upstairs, the prophet's chamber area. It was in the prophet's chamber office at the time. And I started, of course, me, I started looking through the books. And I found one on church planting by Dr. James Singleton from Arizona. He was a pastor in Arizona, Tri-City Baptist Church. He was very well known in Fundamental Baptist Fellowship. I thought, oh, I'm going to read this book. Maybe I learned something. Yeah, I learned some things. There was a lot of good stuff in the book. But I remember one of the statements he made. He was talking about the church and, 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 and referring to the, un- and of course he was universal church, and he referred to the universal church as the body of Christ. He said, which is really a misnomer, because a body is that which makes life visible. And he was trying to say that the Bible is using the word body as something invisible. And I thought to myself, does God make sense? Does God not know what he's saying? Or did the translators not know what they were doing? No, he doesn't know what he's doing. Because the body is that which makes life visible. There's no such thing as an invisible body. Because the body, again, is that which might, makes life visible. And of course, this is one of the teachings of Protestantism, uh, is the universal, invisible church. You know, the Catholics taught universal, which means they were the church. And they were the visible church over all the world. That's how they described it. And they were the kingdom of God, too. And we'll, I'll, I'll read you some things concerning that later. But, but the Protestants came along, and they invented the term invisible but because there turned out to be many denominations. And so they invented this invisible term. Uh, you know, can you operate a church with invisible members? Can we meet in an invisible location? How about invisible officers? Or, better yet, how about invisible ties? <laughs> you know, an invisible church can't minister church discipline. You know, Matthew 18 then should read, tell it to the invisible church, huh? Are you confused? I am. Uh, no, when God says it's an assembly, he's referring to something that's visible. You are visible. An assembly is visible. An assembly of people gathered in a stadium and shouting, yah, rah, 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 on Sunday or whatever, Monday night is visible. An assembly is always visible. And that's what a church is. It's an invisible, it's a visible assembly. It's also organized. You know, we have epistles, which are letters, inspired letters, to the churches, teaching church doctrine, and then we have pastoral epistles that give specific instruction how a church is organized. You know, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 5. <coughs> Excuse me. Colossians 2 and verse 5. Paul said this, Though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order, order, or you might say your organization, and the steadfastness of your faith, in Christ. You know, in 1 Timothy 3, 15, Paul wrote to young Timothy, he says, but if I tarry long, 
that thou mayest know how thou oughtest behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Titus, Paul wrote to Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, and he says, I want you to set in order and ordain elders in every church. Set it in order. Set things in order. Organize it. Uh, you know, organized church is kind of described in Philippians chapter 1 where he says he wrote to the, the, the pastors and deacons and the saints as a church. So there's organization. A church is organized. New Testament church is organized. Uh, a church also must be constituted. Uh, again, the word assembly uh, uh, implies that. You must have right ingredients. In other words, there are qualifications for membership in a church. You know, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, very clearly defines what those qualifications are. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 says, Then they that gladly received his word, that's salvation. That puts them in the kingdom of God, but doesn't put them in the church. But they gladly received his word, were baptized. Of course, that's water baptism. And were added, same day, were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So you have salvation, they received his word, they were baptized and added to the church. See, baptism is the door of entrance into the church, not salvation. Not salvation. Salvation doesn't put you in the church. Baptism does. And not, and not just anyone can rightly belong, rightfully belong to a New Testament church. Any more than just anyone can be a police officer. Do you know if you want to be a police officer, they're going to run drug tests on you. You're going to have to go through some tests. I mean, if you want to drive a truck, you're going to have to do drug tests. If you want to be a fireman, there are qualifications, requirements for being a fireman. But yet people think today they can just join a church and there's no qualifiers. But the New Testament church clearly teaches, teaches us we are to exclude erring, even erring members. You know, Matthew 18, 17, if they refuse to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. In other words, you're to put him out of the church. Talk about somebody who was in. Uh, 2 Timothy or Second Thessalonians 3 talks about those that will not work. And if they will not work, um, we are to, to withdraw ourselves from that, that one and have no fellowship with him. In Titus chapter 3, verse 10, a heretic after the first and second admonition, reject, knowing that the same is perverted. So, so there are qualifiers to becoming a member of the New Testament church. You know, salvation doesn't put you into a church. It doesn't put you into the body of Christ because that's, that's what a church is. It's a body. And, and we'll see that uh, next week because now I'm running out of time here. But there are, some, there are three metaphors or pictures of what a church is in the New Testament. And those will help us clearly understand these four things. And we'll look at those next week and some other things. But, but again, the kingdom of God and the church are two different things. The church preaches the gospel of the kingdom, but salvation does not put you into a church. Baptism does. Now, you can join another church if that church you were baptized in will transfer your membership to another church. But you just can't leave a church at your wish and will. Otherwise, you'll be disciplined. And then no church should take you in, although they do. But you know, these are the things that make up a New Testament church, and these are the distinctions between the two. And uh, we'll see this even more clearly uh, next week and the weeks ahead. Uh, so any questions? All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the time of your word tonight. Thank you for... The truth of thy word, thank you for the, the how you have revealed yourself through your word. I pray that you help us to uh, understand these truths, that we might be better servants of thine, better understand your plan and purpose for us uh, in this time period which we're living. 
and the purpose of our church is to preach the gospel, uh, to disciple those and baptize those that are born again, and then, Father, uh, again, to uh, continue to, to reach others and, and uh, to multiply ourselves in seeing other churches established uh, for your glory and honor. And we just uh, thank you again for your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.